Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.8, The Stamp Act Congress. What had begun with the Virginia Resolves in May of 1765 had led to riots and mob violence throughout the colonies heading through that summer. All throughout the colonies, the story was the same. Merchants and lawyers would recruit from the labor class to burn effigies, destroy homes, and generally cause mayhem. Occasionally, like in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, the situation got away from the merchant class, leading to mob violence that spiraled out of control. If you will recall, however, heading into that October, the only official response had been that one that came from Patrick Henry in the form of the Virginia Resolves. This was partially a result of the colonies learning about the Stamp Act right around the same time that they were wrapping up their legislative sessions for the season. Therefore, throughout the summer months of 1765, while there was a lot of noise out in the streets and in the form of pamphlets, there was no action in the form of official responses from the individual colonies, Virginia notwithstanding. The colonies were always going to respond. That was a given. The question, however, was what form that response would take. It was Massachusetts that would set things into motion when, that June, they proposed a meeting of all the colonies to respond to the ongoing crisis. Now, critically, we need to consider the timing of the proposal. June is when the news of the Virginia Resolves began to arrive in Massachusetts. However, it came before any sort of mob action had taken place. We know that any kind of planning towards such demonstrations did not really begin until the early part of July. This means that the initial planning for the Stamp Act Congress took place well in advance of the events of that summer, though the actual Congress took place after the riots had begun, and indeed while they were still going on in some locations. The idea of a Congress was not entirely new. In fact, it was based roughly on the Albany Congress from a decade before, and had taken its cue from the Plan of Union. We had discussed the Plan of Union in detail back in episode 3.27. However, here is a brief reminder of just what that was. Proposed by Benjamin Franklin, the Plan of Union would have created something akin to an American legislature. This plan would have brought the colonies into much closer cooperation with each other. Amongst the biggest allies that Franklin had in the pursuit of this plan was none other than Thomas Hutchinson, who now found himself as the prime Stamp Act villain in Massachusetts. Well, it certainly was an audacious plan. The colonies were never going to get on board in 1754. Most colonies avoided the topic altogether, while those who chose to even debate it were quick to shoot it down. Despite the plan of union being dead in the water from the start, the Stamp Act had really changed the situation profoundly. The realization that the Stamp Act Congress was a thing that needed to happen came as a result of a summer of violence. To be clear, this was an unprecedented step for the colonies, and was something that was illegal. There were agreements in place between the colonies and the British that such a congress would not occur. 
while there had been the previous Albany Congress, that differed in the fact that it was something designed as more of a war council during an unprecedented event, chiefly the French and Indian War. Nothing about the Albany Congress was challenging parliamentary supremacy over the colonies. The Congress likewise showed just how much British influence was waning. The Stamp Act Congress was illegal. The colonies had not been authorized in any way by anyone actually in charge that such a meeting could occur. Grenville had given the colonies a chance to send their complaints to London prior to the passage of the act, but certainly would not have supported the colonies acting in the collective. For the exact reasons that we are about to see, just about the very last thing in London that anybody wanted was the colonies acting in any meaningfully united way, especially when it came to politics. Necessity had dictated some cooperation previously with regard to military needs. However, the colonies coming together to protest an action by the Crown? That was out of the question. And yet, the British did nothing in response. Sure, there was some angry fist shaking and some mumbled curses at the expense of the colonists. But that was really it. The British had very few options. They were not, in 1765 at least, going to march troops into New York and break up the Congress. Likewise, despite said angry grumblings, everybody recognized that the situation was sensitive and nobody really wanted to push things any further. However, from this point forward, the colonists also became acutely aware of their own leverage over the British. They could push back against their colonial overlords without consequence. The Stamp Act Congress was an important step in what would become the rise of American autonomy heading into the next decade. As we just discussed, the Congress was illegal, and everybody knew that, from the British to the colonists who were gathered in New York. So the question therefore becomes, why did the colonists decide to act at that moment in the way that was in opposition to British law? The colonies had pushed back against English authority before. Recall, the final decade of the 17th century had been filled with uprisings. However, even then, there was nothing quite like this. The summer of violence had forced colonial legislatures to act in a way to get control over the very real and ongoing threat of mob violence. The colonial governments were able to read the room and understood that a lack of action on their part was going to risk further violence. There was a real fear during the fall of 1765 that the situation was going to get away from everybody and that the violence that had characterized that summer would grow and become even more dramatic. Therefore, when legislative sessions reopened in the fall, Colonial officials were all too anxious to attempt to re-establish control. We are going to talk later today about the various resolutions that were released during the fall. However, the biggest single event was unquestionably the Stamp Act Congress. Meeting in New York from October the 7th through the 25th, the group was made up of 27 delegates from 9 of the 13 colonies and consisted primarily of merchants, lawyers, and landowners. 
it was largely comprised of these same groups that had done so much in organizing the resistance in the individual colonies. The delegates that made up the Stamp Act Congress are likewise an interesting group when we consider them in the context of future events. Well, in the popular consensus, the Stamp Act is often viewed as being the first real step towards the War of Independence. The delegates in attendance certainly were not talking about a break from Britain. And in fact, everybody understood that there was a need for moderation. Remember that the reason the Congress became a reality in the first place was a need from colonial officials to bring the summer's violence to an end. Of the 27 delegates at the Stamp Act Congress, there certainly were future American revolutionaries. Thomas McKean, John Morton, Philip Livingston, and Caesar Rodney are all future signers of the Declaration of Independence. John Dickinson, William Johnson, and John Rutledge would all sign the Federal Constitution in 1787. Other members included James Otis Jr., Eli Flitt Dyer, and Christopher Gadsden, all members who would be vocal supporters of independence. At least five of the delegates would remain loyalists during the Revolution. The group further did not restrict their objections merely to the Stamp Act, but used the opportunity to list their many grievances from over the past few years. Specifically, the Congress addressed the 1763 Proclamation Line, the American Duties Act, the Vice Admiralty Court in Halifax, and, of course, the Stamp Act itself. The result of the Congress, which was going to last throughout that October, was a series of documents and responses that were subsequently sent back to London. The documents were the Declaration of the Stamp Act Congress, the Petition to the King, the Letter to the House of Lords, and finally the Letter to the House of Commons. I want to take a few minutes to look at each of these individually. I'm going to tell you right up front that in terms of the complaints, there is very little differences between the addresses. We know exactly what the colonists are upset about. However, what we can gain by taking the documents individually is insight into where colonial leadership stood in response to each group. To begin, let's knock out all of the things that the four documents hold in common. All of them start with a flowery declaration of loyalty. The colonists were very concerned with making clear that their grievances over the new laws stem not from a place of disunion or animosity, but rather that their complaints come as a result of their union with Great Britain. The colonists wanted everybody to understand that they viewed themselves as British citizens, and therefore they felt that those rights that British citizens hold sacred should rightfully be theirs as well. These declarations that the colonists are unquestionably loyal were certainly to help downplay concerns over treason and open rebellion. In their address directly to the king, the colonists are not just reminding George III of their undying loyalty, but they are also appealing to the king for help. The colonists restate that their settlement of the colonies came with the approval and encouragement of George III's predecessors. They concluded their letter by stating that, We most humbly beseech your majesty that you will be graciously pleased to take into your royal consideration 
the distresses of your faithful subjects on this continent, and to lay the same before your majesty's parliament, and to afford them such relief as in your royal wisdom, their unhappy circumstances shall be judged to require. This stands in contrast to the letters either to the House of Commons or Lords. Here, the Stamp Act Congress did profess their allegiance to Parliament, and they did recognize that they were subordinate to that body. However, unlike with the address to the King, the colonists are not asking the House of Lords for protection. Interestingly, even here, however, we see the colonists spend time making clear that they were unquestionably loyal. Despite this, however, the colonists quickly pivot over to a discussion of their natural rights as British subjects. As with the address to the king, the Stamp Act Congress makes clear that they view themselves as natural British subjects. In contrast to the letter to the king and even that to the House of Lords, the Stamp Act Congress really seems just to be paying the necessary lip service with niceties when it comes to their letter to the House of Commons. Very quickly, they get into their grievances and the arguments that they have the same rights as all the other British subjects. Unlike the letter to the king, however, there was no mistaking the fact that the colonists were not looking at the House of Commons as being any great protector of their rights. For the Stamp Act Congress, the king was still viewed as the protector of their rights from parliamentary overreach. However, even in their letter to the House of Lords, the drafters seemed to show a greater degree of reverence. With the House of Commons, they got right to the point. Questions of form aside, we see the Congress place their focus primarily on the Stamp Act, but also with a particular amount of time being spent on that Admiralty Court based out of Halifax. The delegates begin by addressing the question of their rights to trial by jury. They likely covered this first as an attempt to soften the blow from the real issues, specifically the Stamp Act. In their addresses to both Houses of Parliament, the Congress obviously talks at great length about their rights as natural-born British subjects. The Congress states that taxation without the representation of the colonists in the body taxing them is unconstitutional. This is nothing new and is an argument that we have seen for weeks now. The colonists here, however, go a step further, admitting that the impracticalities of representation render their desire for said representation impossible. The only body, therefore, that holds the ability to levy taxes against the colonists is the individual colonial assemblies, as those serve as representative bodies in the region. In other words, it is not as though the colonists are asking for representation in Parliament. They are making clear that such representation is not practical. Rather, what they are seeking is acknowledgement that their own local colonial assemblies were the bodies that held a valid claim to taxation powers over them. Well, the main arguments being put forward concerned questions over representation, or rather the impossibility thereof, as well as questions regarding colonial rights to trial by jury. In both the address to the Lords and the Commons, the colonists do address the more pragmatic effect of the ongoing crisis. 
The Congress points out that the trade between the colonies and Britain is mutually beneficial to everybody involved. They are also quick to point out, if not just outright giving a thinly veiled threat, that the recent acts and the duties levied against them were burdensome, and that in the very near future, it would become impossible for them to pay back their now mounting debt due to a crippling lack of specie. This, of course, would filter back onto those merchants, who were now increasingly anxious about being able to collect on that debt. The end effect of these acts and duties, therefore, would be extraordinarily detrimental to that mutually beneficial trade. In their address to the House of Commons, the Congress mentions just how one-sided the trade imbalance already was, and reminded everybody that the colonists do owe a large amount of debt that had already been extended from the British merchants. In other words, we are being taxed to death over here, and it would really be a shame if we started defaulting on our debts to the British merchants. The threats to the merchants were not some minor thing either. This was a very real worry for those merchants. During our last episode, we had talked about the growing frustration amongst that merchant class back in Britain concerning the increasing difficulty of collecting American debt. The memorials to the House of Lords and the House of Commons perfectly frame these concerns. The question therefore becomes, what was the effectiveness of the Stamp Act Congress, and indeed, what were their goals in the first place? The Congress was, if nothing else, an overwhelmingly polite endeavor. This was not an accident. As I had mentioned previously, the group that assembled in New York was preaching moderation. The last thing that anybody in this group wanted to do was escalate things further than they had already gone. Even as the Congress sat in session, the situation right outside their door in New York was extremely tenuous. If the summer had been a time for anger and uprisings, the delegates wanted to cool everybody off. This can be immediately seen in the decision to not have a more radical member, like James Otis Jr., be the presiding officer, but rather Timothy Ruggles. Ruggles had a long political history in Massachusetts. However, he was about as far away as you could get in regards to his own personal radicalism, from somebody like, say, James Otis. When the revolution does come a decade later, Ruggles would remain a loyalist. This moderation is felt heavily throughout the language of the different petitions and declarations. The Congress was extremely careful not to overstep. The delegates wanted to tie their arguments to accepted historical fact hence the discussion of the conditions regarding their founding. The delegates, while admitting in their address to the House of Commons, subordination towards Parliament, they did question, though interestingly did not actually answer, the limits of what that subordination included. Rather than answering the question as to the limits of said subordination, the Congress instead asked a question back, on whether such subordination is synonymous to total submission. If you are listening to this and thinking that the delegates were being overly obtuse here, you're really not wrong. 
The delegates were eager not to go too far in their response, and as a result, they often danced around those critical issues. Their strong desire to not throw things into even more of a tailspin meant that the address produced a document that, far from being revolutionary and radical, were an exercise in politeness and was a reminder of the colonists' continuing loyalty to the crown. This really is not any kind of a surprise either, as that is exactly the tone that the delegates were trying to set. They did not want to be radical and revolutionary, they wanted to be that voice of moderation. As we are going to see moving forward, far from the discussion over the rights of the colonists moving parliament, it would be the more pragmatic argument that will end up doing the trick. Parliament did not want to cave into American claims over their rights and questions over their representation. What did push the needle forward was those merchants in Britain and concern over hurting an already struggling economy. However, all of that is still in our future. The Stamp Act Congress was over at the end of October, with the actual repeal of the Act still months away. Where does that leave the colonies moving into the fall and further towards the winter? In addition to the Congress itself, nine of the 13 colonies would issue their own set of resolves in response to the ongoing crisis. Between early September and mid-December, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Connecticut, Massachusetts, South Carolina, New Jersey, and New York would all publish their own resolves. All of these followed roughly the same format as what we had seen come from Patrick Henry and the Virginians. While it might be tempting to move through each of these resolves individually, they all really do follow the same thread. By now, it is the standard story throughout all of the colonies. The tracts laid out the conditions surrounding their immigration to North America, which did not result in the colonists waiving those natural rights that they held as British citizens. Their arguments remained that these rights had been confirmed time and time again by different monarchs. The end effect, therefore, is that the new duties being passed on the colonists were unconstitutional and a blatant violation of those sacred rights. Only the people can consent to taxation, and as the colonists lacked representation in Parliament, they could not be taxed. In addition to the political responses coming from the colonies, and the Stamp Act Congress, mob action had largely rendered the act unenforceable in the American colonies. By the time that the Stamp Act actually took effect on November 1st, hardly anybody was willing to stick their neck out and attempt to issue a revenue stamp. Meanwhile, back in London, the various complaints and grievances from the colonies were taken with a healthy dose of fist-waving, shouts of treason, and undeniable indignation. The mobs and the rabble were seen as being exactly that, street thugs who were wildly overstepping. However, if there was one thing that really worried everybody and would make a meaningful difference, it was economics. We know, of course, that the Stamp Act Congress had warned of such things. However, even as the Congress was concluding their plans back in New York, discussions were already being had across the Atlantic. The thing that would really shake everything up, interestingly enough, was not stamps, 
but rather it was molasses. New York merchants had decided as far back as 1764 that the best path to the repeal of the American Duties Act was to hit the British where it hurt. Claiming the burden of overtaxation, they could simply stop paying their debts to the British merchants. To be clear as well, these merchants that we are talking about are not individual shopkeepers either. These are the merchants that would be dealing with large-scale importation and exportation of goods between the colonies and the mother country. A single shopkeeper would not be that big of a concern. However, a collective action by the major importers and exporters in the colony? Well, that would indeed be a very serious issue. The American merchants, under the pretense of being excessively taxed, informed their British counterparts, and indeed the Board of Trade itself, that they did not have the money to pay both their taxes and their debts. The Americans, wanting to prove that this was not mere puffery, began cancelling orders and stopped paying their debts. This was nothing short of a catastrophe. The American colonies did not owe some trivial amount of money to the British merchants. They owed millions. Already suffering from an economy that was faltering, this action on the part of the American merchants threatened to plunge the entire system far deeper into depression. Facing potential financial ruin, should the Americans default on their debts, the British merchants were very uneasy about their position heading into the winter months. As the risk of default by the Americans became a reality, bankruptcies began to mount, something that forced the British merchants to write to the House of Commons about seeking relief. The Americans were able to ride out this dramatic decrease in their own importations from the British because they were already sitting on a relatively large surplus of supplies. Drain those boom years at the end of the 1750s, and even into the very early 1760s, American merchants had stocked up. Therefore, despite the slowing of imports, the colonists had enough supply of most goods that they were able to minimize the effect on themselves while actually being able to raise prices as their oversupply was reduced. The situation as 1766 began was this. The American colonies are pumping out resolution after resolution, touting their rights and challenging the constitutional authority of Parliament to tax them. A summer of violence had taken place as mob action hit the majority of the colonies, as effigy after effigy was burnt. The British merchants were beginning to sharply feel the effects of the Americans scaling back trade and defaulting on their debts, something that they are doing under the pretense of overtaxation at the hands of Parliament. Dealing with what was now a legitimate crisis heading into the spring session of Parliament in 1766, you had Lord Rockingham and a ministry that was already struggling to keep its head above water. In short order, factions appeared within Parliament between the pro- and anti-American groups. Leading the charge of the anti-American faction was the author of the Stamp Act, Lord Grenville. Sure, Grenville had been ousted from the ministry, but that did not mean he was any less anxious to defend his position. In the other corner supporting the pro-American wing is our old friend William Pitt. We have spent a good amount of time already 
going over Grenville's position. He was not interested in the colonists' claims of their rights, and even had specifically laid out that he would not consider grievances about the Stamp Act if they were asserting the rights of the American colonists. Pitt, for his role, argued that though it is true that the colonists were absolutely subordinate to Parliament, that Parliament lacked the power of taxation over them. Pitt argued against a prevailing belief that the colonies were virtually represented in Parliament by waving it off as an argument not even worthy of a reply. While Pitt believed that the colonies did owe subservience to Parliament, he did differentiate between internal and external taxation. Pitt agreed that certain duties could be levied against the colonies to regulate trade. However, when it came to internal taxes to raise revenue for the empire as a whole, he agreed that they lacked the necessary representation. Pitt likewise warned that war with the colonies would be a catastrophe for the British, reminding them of just how much the British depended on trade with the Americans. Edmund Burke, who would join Pitt on the pro-American side, argued that well true that the colonies were absolutely subordinate to Parliament, it was critical that Parliament temper that power in order to preserve American freedoms. We could go on and on. However, this really is the theme of the moment. Nobody was willing to go so far as to say that Parliament had no authority over the colonists. However, at least in that pro-American camp, there was an acknowledgement that the Americans had at least some degree of rights. In a speech made by Colonel Barr, he laid out clearly that the only options available were either to admit that the Americans do indeed have rights, or prepare to enforce the Stamp Act at gunpoint. Grenville and his anti-American camp countered back that acquiescing to the American demands would result in a loss of control over them a loss that could not be remedied by anything other than a civil war. It was not lost on Grenville that, should they back down now and repeal the Stamp Act, the Americans would become that much more difficult to control in the future. It would prove to the colonists that mob actions were a sufficient way to overturn parliamentary will. Once that power was gone, once the precedent was set, it was going to be nearly impossible to recover. What everybody, both pro- and anti-American faction alike, recognized was the significant pragmatic considerations. As mentioned a moment ago, Pitt had made abundantly clear in his speech that the cost of a war with the colonies would be crippling to Britain. There was more than a little fear going around that the colonies were nearing that precipice of a full-scale rebellion. A rebellion that the British were desperate to avoid. The Seven Years' War had just ended and, for as big of a victory as it had been, the British could hardly afford another expensive war. A war that they recognized would drag all of the European powers back to arms. This is to say nothing of the fact that everybody understood that the British lacked the force necessary in the colonies to put down an American rebellion. Both factions likewise saw the undeniable truth that trade with the colonies was increasingly depressed, 
much to the growing complaints of the British merchants. Well, the colonists might have been an ocean away, the struggling merchants in London were a very loud voice much closer to home. The discontent of the merchants deeply concerned the Rockingham Ministry. Throughout the end of 1765 and into 1766, Rockingham worked with the merchants on a plan forward on how to repeal the Stamp Act. Like it or not, Rockingham understood that a complete repeal was the only real option on the table. The appeals by the merchants were enough to get George III to, very reluctantly, accept and support repeal in January. This decision by the king came at the very strong urging of Rockingham, who saw the writing on the wall. This was furthered by Benjamin Franklin, who addressed the House of Commons in February. Recall that a year before, Franklin had assumed that the colonists would accept the Stamp Act. By the time the calendar had turned over, however, Franklin stood staunchly in the anti-Stamp Act faction. Franklin made a logical choice for the role, and was just what the Rockingham Ministry needed. Franklin, by 1766, was a well-known, well-respected figure. Franklin explained that the Americans do carry a heavy tax load already in the form of those taxes demanded by their own assemblies. He further made clear that the colonies lacked the specie necessary to pay for the stamp tax. Grenville attempted to nail Franklin on military spending, asking if he thought that the colonies need not pay for their own protection. Franklin countered that the colonies had defended themselves, raising 25,000 provincials and lavishly spending on behalf of the empire's defense. Arguing further that the reimbursement had not equaled the amount that the Americans had spent on the war effort. Franklin would dive into that debate of external and internal taxes, arguing that external taxes are regulations placed on imports, whereas internal taxes, such as the Stamp Act, sought to extort money from the colonists. Franklin concluded by giving a stark warning that attempting to enforce the Stamp Act with military force would fail. He warned that nobody wanted a rebellion, and an army would not meet a rebellion, though attempting to force compliance with military force may well make one. On February 21st, 1766, a week after Franklin testified, a motion was presented to repeal the Stamp Act. Support for the act by this point had dipped enough that the result of the vote came as a surprise to nobody. By a final vote of 275 to 167, the Stamp Act was repealed. Ultimately, the real force behind the repeal was the merchants. Their cries simply could not be ignored. The economy, already depressed by years of war, could not sustain the loss of trade with the Americans. The ministry had towed a very careful line in the repeal, reasserting that while they believed Parliament had the power and authority to tax the colonies, enforcing said tax in this situation would drag everybody into a civil war that no one wanted. However, nothing comes for free. Along with the repeal of the Stamp Act came the introduction of the Declaratory Bill. This bill, 
as we will discuss next time, goes to show just how little Britain understood the problem that they now had on their hands. Next time, we are going to spend our episode digesting everything that had just taken place. The Stamp Act marks a moment of profound change in the relationship between the British and their American colonists. It is a change that is going to help explain the events of the coming decade, as the relationship between Great Britain and their North American colonies begins to fall apart. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we discuss the legacy of the Stamp Act.